Hello, and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is where we speak to fascinating, tantalizing, adventurous, and unique characters from across the globe that will make comedians like you and me live this comedy journey on our own terms. Now, if you like this episode, share it with your friends, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Amazon or iTunes. If you hated it, keep it to yourself. Now, today's guest is Jeff Whiting. He's a man that's been in comedy for over a decade. He's, he's probably the produces more comedy shows in the UK than any other promoter. He has come across many of the famous names you see on TV, and he is your comedy connoisseur on producing thousands of gigs across the country. Please welcome Jeff Whiting. Hello. Great to be here. Fantastic. Thank you for a generous introduction. Yeah, of course. We, we, we all need that. I mean, a lot of people say that when they've had MCs, they've had some terrible introductions and they like getting their names wrong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've done what I did one for somebody in somewhere in New York um, who had just referred to me and they couldn't quite pronounce Whiting, even though it's not that complicated uh, because they just, had, they just said it written down and weren't entirely sure. But that's fine because they didn't know me well. They would just refer to me and said, I'll do a quick pod with you. Is that fine? I said, yeah. And they said, Jeff Whitting. I thought, oh, well, okay. <laughs> so that, like, like they're calling you a dog breed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mind. I, you know, I, I like chatting, you know. Uh, that's probably why I got into comedy in the first place. So I'm quite happy to chat. Uh, mm. Yeah, so um, it's good to be here. And it's now you, you've you've had a sort of what you said there. You like chatting and all that, and it's it's quite an interesting point because you were like a professional musician before yeah. you became a comedian. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of performing arts all share one same thing: it's escapism, yeah. not only for the audience but also for the performer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think one thing we all share is. Well, obviously creativity, hopefully, because you've got to write music, write songs or write yeah. material, comedy, gags, sets, material. But also, I think we can't do day jobs. And um, it generally sounds odd, but a lot of the motivation, I think, for a lot of performers is they tried a day job. I, I've done a couple of day jobs on and off uh, and think I just cannot handle this nine to five, having a boss saying, do this next, do that next. Just independent people who think oh, I've got to plow my own furrow and I've got to do my own thing and uh it's a risk involved of course but anyway so with me I think I went into music because I I had a day job because I had to at first you know when you start playing in a band and then the band got more successful and we managed to get a management deal and a record deal at the time a long time back but um and earn enough to live not a huge amount of money just enough to live um but it meant I was able to play music for a living for about 12 years and um which was fantastic and travel around, went over to Germany, a couple of tours and all around the UK and it was great. But I think it was, yeah, I think it was based on the fact that I didn't, I just wanted to be independent and be doing something creative and also not be stuck in a nine to five job. Um, and then that pushes you on to really go for it. But what was the moment that sort of led from music to comedy? Because I remember my dad's a big fan, used to watch The Comedians, and he sometimes used to play it for me. And there was a guy called, the what was the guy, Charlie Brooks or something? The guy that was from Yorkshire, and then he used to let out a big laugh. Yeah, and I can't remember his surname. It wasn't Brooks. It was, that, that, it was, I can't remember. I know the guy you mean. Sorry, I can't tell you because I didn't watch it a great deal. Although I, I'm, I'm aware of it and I've seen some episodes. 
but um yeah he 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 was it a similar thing to you because i hear with him he used to do music but he used to do an intro before the music and he found out that people enjoyed the introduction more than the music itself yeah there is some truth in that you're the only person who's ever asked me that actually um so you're the only person that's really actually ever asked me that question because it doesn't really come up but when i was with i was the front man in various bands um lead singer and sometimes playing guitar sometimes not but and my conversation with the audience in between the songs was a bit too funny in the sense that the band didn't really approve of it so but it was funny in the sense because we were supposed to be a serious band you know with record deal and putting over a sort of serious sort of image you know that we wanted to to be a a rock band or a pop band or an indie band you know and it wasn't really the thing to make jokes it's changed a bit since actually now you know if you get someone now with a bit of levity involved even someone like Billie Eilish you know uh, you know being a bit quirky or making videos that are a bit crazy at that time it wasn't really the way things were done at that time it, you had to sort of present this stony-faced stern sort of like five guys who really are on it, you know, there wasn't as much. I'm not saying you didn't have fun, but you know what I mean. You, you certainly weren't supposed to make jokes and chat to the audience in between the, the songs, which I used to do. And um, I used to get admonished for that. And they'd say, "Jeff, could you just be a bit more serious or just say less between the songs?" So <laughs> then, when that band when that band wrapped up, I was in a band called Jim Jiminy, and um, the singer in that band in that band it was the backing vocalist actually and guitarist. And uh, the singer in that band, Kev, uh, he said to me once. Uh, Jeff, to be quite honest, uh, have you ever thought about comedy? And this was, oh. this was 1988. And I said, uh, well, not really. No. He said, well, he said, you know, to be quite frank, you, you chat a lot, let's be honest. You like chatting. You're always chatting to us. You're always telling us jokes. And even on stage, we have to try and stop you telling jokes. Have you thought perhaps you should be doing comedy? And I said, well, I don't think I, I, don't think I could do that. And I ended up in a day job for the next seven years. And then I got made redundant from that job on the dole, went behind, five months behind my rent, lost my car, I didn't have a mobile phone, couldn't afford one, didn't have a landline, didn't have anything, and was pretty well finished. And I saw an advert in the newspaper saying, you know, could you be a comedian? And this was something called the Open Mic Award run by Avalon and the Daily Telegraph, which now doesn't exist, but it existed then. And I thought, I'm at absolute rock bottom. And I remember what Kev said, and I thought, it, it, you know, the advert just said, you know, do you think you could be funny? Do you think you could be a comedian? You know, auditions or, you know, send a tape. I thought, I've got nothing to lose whatsoever. I'm, I'm on the dole. I haven't got any money. I'm behind with the rent. I've got nothing. I mean, if I'm, rub if I'm rubbish at it, it won't make any difference because I can't go any further down. I'm at the bottom. So it doesn't matter, really. And I'm free in the daytimes because I'm on the dole. So I sent in a tape and it was a cassette tape. You had to send in a tape. This <laughs> what? This was 1997. I sent a cassette, <laughs> tape, a cassette tape to um, the address they gave me, and three minutes of you just recorded into a, a microphone with no audience in your front room of material, which they would listen to to judge has the guy at least got any material that's at least half decent or you know acceptable. And obviously they thought it was acceptable enough to get into the heat. And then I went and did the heat, which was my first ever gig, which is unusual because obviously most comics as you're aware don't do their first ever gig in a competition they tend to sort of start doing some of the but it wasn't like that for me because i i just come out of nowhere and it was a new idea i'd had and thought just try this why not so i hadn't done any preparation gig wise i just thought let's just see what they say and they said can you come to this address in two weeks and do five minutes i said yes didn't think of trying to get some stage time before that didn't even occur to me 
because I'd never been a stand-up. So just waited and on the night did five minutes and it went not not well by our modern standards of what we all want to do now, but acceptably enough to get to the semi-final. And then I went to the semi-final and uh, it was 10 down to one, which is, and that was my fourth ever gig. I'd done two in between and uh, that was in Cardiff and it was literally 10 down to one because they were doing them all around the country. So each heat, there'd be one winner and nine losers, if you want to call it that. And I didn't get through. Um, and I thought, oh, well, but somebody did approach me and spoke to me, somebody from Avalon and said, you know, you've got some basically good ideas there. You know, if you can keep gigging, you're allowed to enter again next year. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, God, another year, you know, just to come back and do this. Is it worth it? But I'd got a sort of bit of a flavour. I thought, I quite like it. So I started doing some gigs and then got some encouragement from one or two people, at the ones that went a bit better and thought, well, I'll just keep going. And so when it came to the next year, I was going because I just decided to keep going. And so I did re-enter and uh, 1998 and again got through the early stage got to the semi-final and this time I won the semi-final so unbelievably I managed to win it uh, out of the 10 um, and so I went to Edinburgh and I did the it was called the Open Mic Award final and it was the same very much as so the funny it was 400 seat theatre Harry Enfield was judging it various other TV comedians were judging people in the business were judging and I was in it with Stephen Merchant Oh, <laughs> it was myself, Hal Cruttenden, Stephen Merchant, Stephen Grant, uh, Dougie Dunlop, who's still on the circuit doing well, a professional comic, uh, a lot of, and anyway, so to cut a long story short, I made that final and just by being in that final and getting that publicity, I didn't get placed, they placed the first three, um, Dan Antopolsky was in it as well. Um, and I think Hal came third, as far as I remember. Stephen Merchant wasn't placed. It's amazing, isn't it? He wasn't in the top three. He wasn't placed, nor was I. Um, and Stephen and I went had a pint after and said, oh, yeah, I've wasted time. I can't believe it. Didn't get anywhere. Uh, so he's done rather better than me. Probably more difficult to get Stephen on a podcast than it is to get <laughs> me. But we were in that final together and uh, neither of us got placed. But um, so that was 98 but then as a result of that Avalon started to book me for paperwork almost straight away because I suppose once they got to the, down to the final 10 out of whoever it was they assumed that they were good enough to do paid spots and of course as you know we all bluff things I mean they said to me can you do 40 minutes I said oh yeah I mean I had about 15 but I knew they were booking three months ahead or four so I who's, who's mad enough to say no to that so I said oh yeah yeah they said would you be able to do 40 minutes at some of our venues I said oh yeah <laughs> they got home and started writing like crazy to try and get to 40 minutes and the first gig I did for Avalon I was supported by Richard Iardi oh. yeah because he obviously these are younger guys and newer guys that's the only reason and then the second gig I did for them I was supported by John Oliver oh. yeah they were the support acts doing 20s and I was closing on 40 on both those gigs they were the first two I did but of course it's only because Richard and John were newer than me and, and were coming through sort of behind me that they were opening and I was closing it wasn't because it was just that was the pecking order as people were you know at the time I'd been doing it a bit longer and they put on the clothes and John and uh, Richard had, were newer than me and were doing the opening sets yeah so they were uh, and so uh, it was just crazy that to watch Richard when he was doing an opening 20 and John Oliver but that all happened so anyway so then um, I then once I was closing for Avalon of course it was a lot easier to get gigs because I could just send that out and then other clubs would say, well, okay, in that case, come and do the Bearcat or come and do the Banana. And then I started getting the loop and then just kept working very hard for a long time to get all the clubs. But alongside that, I opened my first club as a booker, which is another story, which is a sort of spin-off story, really. 
Oh, so that, that's that's quite incredible. I mean, yeah, Richard Ayodi is known. Yeah, lot. lovely guy as well. He was he was a lovely guy then. Brilliant, really nice guy, and he was very funny. I mean, he's quite hard to follow. I mean, he came out and he was pretty new then. I mean, very new, newer than me, and he did a really good set. Did about twenty five minutes probably, and I was watching him thinking that's that's got that's hard to follow. Because you have to step it up, you know. And he was really nice about everything. He was such a good guy. And John Oliver as well. John Oliver had a. Uh, a, 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 a piece in his set about the driving test, and so did I. Only it came up because I was getting out some notes, and I had a couple of photos I'd taken of out of the book with the driving test, and he had the actual book, and he was standing next to me. He said, you, you, "Are you talking about the driving test?" I said, "Yeah, I've got a routine of it." He said, "I've got about two minutes on it, and I actually bring the book." I said, "I'll just take mine out because mine was about twenty seconds, thirty seconds." Because you know, when, you know, as you know, as a comic, when two comics have that, usually one defers and says, "Look, fair enough, one of us can't do it." And I said, "Look, if that's a big part of your set and you've got the book with you, you're obviously doing a much bigger." I'll just take mine out. But that was bizarre. We both had a piece about the driving, the written test. It was not the driving test, but that written test that had come in at the time, where you had all these answers with multiple choice questions. And so I dropped mine out, and he did his, and it was just funny that that happened early days. Anyway, sorry, I mustn't go on about those things. But uh, yeah, so I diversified into booking, but that's really sort of spin-off story because they sort of happen in tandem, really. But how how did it sort of happen in tandem? Did people be like, "Yo, Jeff, you're you're a cool guy. Like, do you no. want to book some gigs for me?" Yeah. No, no, nothing like that whatsoever. <laughs> nobody, nobody said I was a cool guy. No, what happened was when I um, started uh, after I'd done the open the first semi-final that I didn't get through for the open mic award um 97 later that year I was doing maybe five or six home spots a week I went a bit crazy I went from one extreme to the other but it's because I was on the dole job seekers allowance as they might call it now whatever so I thought well I might as well gig six nights a week as long as I can literally afford to get to the gig yeah because I was so skinned as long as I can actually get there in a bus or a train or something I, I, I'll do it you know, all unpaid gigs. So I was doing a lot. And then I used to get the stage newspaper, which now is probably exists, but now everything's been superseded by social media. But then um, the stage was the place. Uh, so this was 97. And obviously it was the weekly newspaper, which I, and I think it's still there. I mean, you can probably go to Smith's. I'm not here to advertise. I'm not sponsored by the stage, but you can probably go and buy it now. Uh, famously, the Spice Girls were put together by answering an advert at the stage. In, I think 1994, I believe that's how they found the Spice Girls, an advert in the stage. To think that that band were put together through an advert in a in a newspaper, in a weekly newspaper in Smith's, not online, uh, not through social media or TV. Anyway, getting back to the point, I was reading the stage, and at the back there would be advertisements, the sort they would have answered that said, you know, artists wanted or actors wanted, and it said comedian wanted for nightclub in Plymouth, thirty pounds. Now I lived in Bath. And I worked out, well, I can get to Plymouth and back on a train for £20 return, so I could do that. And if I walk there and back and don't get a taxi, I, well, whatever, I could probably make £10 or, you know, £8. I mean, that, I literally used to work on those margins. I'd be, if I could make £10, I'd do a gig. It's a profit. So I wrote, because you had to write. You couldn't ring. There was no phone number. Most of them were box numbers. This is how the stage worked. It would say, you know, comedian wanted Plymouth, box number, so-and-so. So you had to literally write a letter and say, I'm Jeff Whiting, I'm a comedian. I could come and do 15 minutes in Plymouth, 30 pounds. Thank you very much. Here, and I didn't have a landline. So I said, could you send me your phone number by post? Because I was operating out of, out of a phone box at the time. This is generally all true. I, act, I used to go to a phone box every day 
put pound coins in and make all my calls to all the promoters and then go home. I didn't have a landline or a mobile, so I couldn't put my own number. So I put my address and said, could you write? So then, yeah, obviously, about a week and a half later, I got a letter back saying, this is Andy, I run the club in Plymouth. Uh, yes, this is my number, could you call me? So I then went to the phone, what's called him? And he said, we're opening a new club. It's the opening night, we want a comedian because we're going to have music, we're going to have a duo, a comedian, a magician. We're going to give them a bit of everything, see how well it goes. And if the things they like, we're going to put in every week. So if they like comedy, we're going to do it. If they like the duo, the music, they like it. So I did my 15 minutes and got involved with the audience and did my best. And then he said, I'll let you know. And the next day, he, um, I rang him because obviously I had to go to the phone box. I rang him because he said, call me tomorrow. I'll see. And he said, yeah, we, we, we liked it. The audience feedback was good. So can you come back next Thursday and do it again? I said, no, because it will be the same 15 minutes, which he hadn't quite appreciated. I said, I'm quite new. That's it. He said, oh, he said, well, well uh, can you, could you come, he said, and chat to the audience, they like that, and bring another comedian with you. And that is how I started booking. Ah. The only way I started booking is because he said to me, could you come with you and bring another comedian, and then you could chat to the audience and introduce him, and I'll pay £70 instead of 30 So I had to find a comedian who'd do it for 50 quid, because it cost me £20 to get there and back. So I can't remember. What's strange is I can't remember the first act that ever did it. I've got a vague idea it might have been. But anyway, so I had to find a comedian who was good enough, but would take a 50 pound gig, cash on the night, a couple of free drinks. I found somebody. So we went down and I did 10 minutes, what in effect was comparing, first time I'd technically ever been a compare, and then brought him on. And it went, well, he said, great, can you do the same next week? I said, right, okay. And then after about three months of bringing one comic a week and hosting every week, I was literally there every week for three months as the host, um, he said, it's going well. I'll put the budget up to 280 pounds. Can you bring two comedians? And you can be the, I said, okay. So then I started having an opener and a closer. Then eventually he said, Could, do you have any new acts around here? I said, I, I can start asking. Then it started to be an opening act, an open spot in the middle and a closing act. And eventually about a year in, it was a full show with an opening act, two open spots and a closing act, and I was resident compare. And that's the only reason I started booking is because he opened that club I did my 15 and I couldn't do more than 15 and he wanted me every week and I couldn't do it. So he said, bring other people. I had no intention to be a booker. All I was doing is trying to get back to the following year to try and get to the final of that competition as a comic, which, which, which I did. But in the meantime, this happened. So I started booking. That was the only reason I did it. I had no plans to ever be a comedy booker. Why do these things happen like that? You often hear, don't you, like stories of like, oh, I, I went to the... Just random things happen and then they yeah. fall into things there's just no explanation is that i don't know myself it, he, he he had a great club it was a great room club fandango in plymouth um probably only held 60 people but it was a basement room with a low ceiling and everybody knows those rooms are good the audience are only three feet away the front row is only three feet away you've got a low ceiling you've got a lot of energy i think he could fit 63 or 64 people it was a separate room so there was no noise from the bar you went through another door into the bar and it was just a great room. Everybody played that gig. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'll give you some, well, Jason Manford came from Manchester to play it because I'd never seen him. And he said, okay, I'll close your gig in Plymouth as long as everything after that is proper pay. This, I paid him, but it wasn't really the sort of money you'd expect to go to Plymouth. But I, he said, I'll do it for your money that you, you're paid to close Plymouth only if everything after that is properly paid. I said, okay. So Jason came to do it. Russell Howard did it. Jimmy Carr did it. Reginald B. Hunter did it. Um, so many people through that period, possibly Mickey Flanagan, he did fit me a lot at the time, so it's quite likely, but I, I can remember specifically being in the room, you know, uh, Glenn Wall came and did it, Tony Law came and did it, I said Reginald D. Hunter, uh, but, but so many others. I mean, 
and obviously Russell Howard because he was from Bristol. Jimmy Carr, who was gigging for a lot. Jimmy did his first ever paid gig in that room, which is which is on record because he did an interview once uh, about ten years ago with a Daily Mail, which was put online where it said, "Oh, only became funny." Or the phrase he used was something like, "I only became funny when Jeff Whiting paid me to go to Plymouth and do twenty minutes for eighty pounds." But basically, his first ever paid gig was Club Fandango in Plymouth. The gig I got by writing him to an advert in the stage. Yeah, so it's just the way things sort of work. So it, the roll call of, of of comics that are now famous that have played it is very long, and it still exists, but it's in a different room. Club Fandango in Plymouth still exists, but it's a monthly gig in a club called Annabelle's because they sold the original club and moved to a different venue. So it's still called Club Fandango at Annabelle's. So. That gig has been running since 1997 and technically is the same people. It's run by the same people. It is in a different building, um, but it yeah. is the same. It's the same title and the same promoters. So that's still there. And people sometimes go because it's Club Fandango. I've had the audit say, it's not big money, Jeff, because it's still not big money. And then you said, yeah, it's not a great deal of money to go to Plymouth. Uh, but is that the place that you started at? I said, yeah, Club Fandango, you know, 90 years. Said, yeah, I've never played the room. I'll go and do it. I said, I know it's not the same room, but it's the same people. I said, yeah, it's, it's the same two guys. Also. I said, yeah, I'll go and do that. I'd like to just check it out. So I get some quite good acts coming down. But anyway, so that that happened. And then as a result of that, uh, 98, there was a club in Bath called The Fez, which was very well run um, and a very nice club, but um, and was a weekly club. And I went and did it as an open spot quite a lot. But at some period, I can't remember, a bit later, um, it closed down. I think it was, I have no idea the, the background to that, but it closed down. Uh, I think the whole club closed down, not just the comedy room, because it was obviously, I think it was a comedy club within a nightclub, you know? So I think the whole venue closed down, maybe it was refurbishing or it was gonna close down and be sold. And so that club stopped. And then a guy called Fenner Andrews, who had a nightclub and a pub in Bath and was a Keaton comedy, you know, fan, um, thought, well, it's gone. So. I'll open a club. Obviously, he didn't compete with them because they weren't there. He thought, well, there's now no club, so I could open something. And he had a very nice basement room in a pub called The Porter, a uh, game very similar to the one in Plymouth, but a bit bigger, about hold about 80 or 90 people. But basement room, again, low ceiling, nice vibe. And he asked around in Bath, and there was myself and another guy, who, who the guy who obviously used to run the fest, not run the fest, uh, he wasn't the promoter, he was the guy who booked some of the acts and, and was the resident MC. Um, and he said, um, uh, you know, I need a booker and a, an MC. And he just interviewed the two of us. He interviewed the guy that was from the other club and um, he interviewed me. And I suppose he asked questions like, you know, why do you think you can do it? And what ideas have you got? And, you know, got chatting and we had about half an hour or 40 minutes chatting and I didn't know what would happen. And then he rang me a few days later and said, I'd like you to do it. So game of the job. So I became the booker and the resident MC at the Comedy Cavern in Bath, which has an even more infamous role of honour than the other one. Uh, even bigger names played that club, but that was there 14 years every week. Every week, 14 years. I didn't host every show, of course. I mean, I was resident MC, but occasionally I had to be somewhere else and someone else came and did it. But we had everybody, you know, the, the Rod Gilberts, the, the Milton Joneses, the Andy Parsons, every, every, every chappy called Sandy, Zoe Lyons. I mean, Everybody, everybody through that period, of course, because it's it started in '98, and uh, so it went. It closed down in whatever it was about 2012, because he sold he sold the pub, and the new owner didn't want to continue, which is often the case. Yeah. Um, you know this business; it's funny. I, I went in and saw the new owner and said, 
I can get black and white frame photographs of all the people that have played this room. Um, and if I'm lucky, some of them, I may have even get some signed ones. You know, I can send them to the guys. I know, you know like Jimmy, I still know Jimmy. And so could you sign this saying comedy cabin bath, you know, because a lot of them have affection for the place, sort of them played it 10 times. Um, and we could put black and white photos all around the room of all the acts that have played it as they do in the banana in Ballon, as they do in other clubs in London that have been running for a long time. And he said, no, 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 not interested. It's going to be a cocktail bar. I said, this room has got 14 years of history of most of the top comedians currently on TV or ones that will be soon. And I can, and they've all played it. And it, that's the fact. And we could do the whole sales thing, the whole photos, the whole vibe. So they all look at all these guys, you know, Greg Davis, whoever, they've all played this room, you know, and we could, we could, push that out. He said, no, very nicely mentioned it, but it's going to be a cocktail, but I'm not running comedy. That was it. Hmm. So the room is still there and it's a cocktail bar, a room that so many acts, Russell Howard did his second open spot there, second gig of his career there. So many people. I mean, there are, Stephen Merchant played it two or three times as an open spot. Um, didn't even do a pay gig, Steve. He did about three open spots there and moved on to other things. You know, I said to him, Stephen Merchant's played this room. He said, no, it's right. I'm having a cocktail bar. Just, when you're in this business, sometimes you think nothing I can do. So the room's still there, but no comedy. I just want to sort of, there's a, there's a lot of things that I've sort of intrigued by that because hmm, now you speak with what, what's like the, how did it lead to, to you had little steps, this happened, that happened. But what's like a short summary of how you got to where you are now, where you were? Uh, was it well, really, word of mouth and it just built up, built yeah, up? Yeah, really. Yeah, a bit up. of everything. I mean, obviously, I went from making the posters up by, I used to cut the photographs of the acts out of um, things like Time Out magazine or The Guardian Guide. I'd cut photos out and make the poster as a sort of collage of photographs of the acts and cut even, I'd even cut words out of newspapers like see this act in separate words so it looked like a serial killer had written it almost you know because it was different words in different fonts to make my posters and then would get a master that I'd made and then photocopy 40 them and then post them to the venue in an envelope this is all what was going 97 98 99 no social media no email email just started about 99 2000 properly hardly, hardly at all a lot of people didn't even have emails addresses still in 99 so I was literally making posters in the local photocopier shop who I had an account with because I was always skinned and the guy knew me and I said, can I pay this noise? All right, so, yeah, I know you'll be back. I said, oh, 10 pounds. And I'd photocopy 40 copies of a black and white poster I'd made myself at home by cutting photos out of comedians and sticking them onto, onto a poster and making it myself with no technology and then just making 40 and posting it to them. And then they put that all around their venue, around the tower. And that's how we'd sell it. Some of those posters still exist. There's a few people who got a few copies left somewhere, which I've never really put up because, well, they look ridiculous now. They look so old fashioned and crazy. But some of them had acts like Mickey Flanagan, supported by Jimmy Carr, were, were the sort of bills I was having made. And my posters were made like that for those lineups. Just Danny Boy was the open spot. It's just madness. But anyway, the point is uh, how I did it, really, Marvin, to be honest, it's, and it gets back to advice, which anybody might want later on in this podcast, is that. Um, I worked like an absolute maniac. I just worked seven days a week, seven days a week, all the time. I, I just worked all the time on comedy. I didn't really do anything else. I just booked comedians. I did gigs. So I did 330 gigs a year for the first three years. So I did 996 gigs or something in the first three years. 
um, just under a thousand um, in the first three years. I gigged six nights a week, sometimes seven, sometimes I do 20 nights in a row. I went to Newcastle and back for an open spot, which was seven hours driving each way. And I did six minutes. I did, I went to Leeds for an open spot, five minutes. I drove to Sheffield and back for a five minute open spot. All these journeys were six hours, five hours each way from where I lived. And I had a very old car that only just worked. Uh, I broke down on the way to gig several times and managed to get the thing running again and get there. I mean, I stayed in B&Bs that were so bad that people, I, I stayed in a B&B in Liverpool once where when I got to the venue and uh, I just left my case there and gone straight to the venue and the guy said, where are you staying? And I, I gave him the name of the road and he said, Christ, I mean, he was he was from Liverpool, obviously I won't attempt the accent, but he said, you're mad staying there. He said, why? I said, it was 12 pounds for the room. He said, I'm not surprised. He said, are there iron bars on the windows? I said, yeah, actually there are. I thought that was weird. He said, that's because every house in that street has iron bars on the windows. It's like notorious drug gang area. It's the worst part of town. You, you know, nobody wants to go there, let alone stay there overnight. I said, well, there's anything I could get for 12 pounds. I'm not surprised. So that's, I just did it by driving a very old car that hardly worked, staying in horrendously horrible hostels and hotels. And working on almost zero budget and killing myself night after night for years and years. That's how I did it. And then that enabled me to become a professional comedian by just getting better over a very long period and getting paid and having to be able to stop staying in the cheapest B&B and, and, and upgrade to a slightly better car, et cetera, and gradually moved up. But then the booking was word of mouth at the beginning, because again, no social media, nothing. So it was all word of mouth because we didn't have social media so basically it was I'd book two clubs and then another guy would say oh do you book those two clubs well I've got a club great and it literally was that it literally snowballed I had three clubs then another guy was say can you book mine four then another guy would say, I've got two clubs that'd be six another guy said I run three pubs can you do all three I'd say yeah that's great that'll be nine and I just built until eventually I went over the 100 club mark I haven't got 100 now post-covid of course let's cut it back I mean I've got a good number but it that covid's put a bit of a train through that you know it's uh, so some of my clubs aren't even reopened yet or some went under during COVID but obviously I've also opened some new clubs since COVID but anyway the point is I went from the one club in Plymouth to 100 clubs but that was probably in the space of about six years I suppose probably from 97 to 2003 I went from zero to about 100 but I was a workaholic you know in a bad way really I worked a bit too much um, I literally would spend all day Sunday you know phoning people trying to do deals, you know, networking, even even through a landline or through a, from a phone box or whatever I had. I got a mobile phone, obviously, after a few years, and then once I could use that, that was fine. But I'd literally be on the phone calling people, uh, you know, and then I'd get a lead, someone would say, I've got a friend who's got a pub, I think he wants comedy, and I wouldn't just leave it, I'd go in and say, right, you know, would you like it? I'll come and see you. So I just went mad, you know, I, so I chased leads, you know, I didn't obviously just sit there and wait for people to hand me 100 clubs, I, you know, I, I'd get leads that were 50-50 and think, well, I'm going to ring the guy and ask. And he'd say, yeah, yeah, actually, I was thinking of comedy. Do you want to come and see the room? I'd say, yeah, I'll come see the room. And then if I, we went well, he'd say, okay, well, let's book a couple of shows and we'll see how it goes. So um, so I just did it by working myself into the ground, really. I mean, I don't work at that rate now. I, I couldn't do it. Uh, the rate I worked at then, I, I literally couldn't do it now. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I'm sure it applies to other people. Perhaps it's like, I don't know, sports people or anybody where they achieve something and then people say how do you do all that training and they probably say actually if somebody asked me to start now I wouldn't do it do you know what I mean sometimes when you're in the moment of doing it you can just push yourself on but if you sit back afterwards and think what you did you think how the hell did I do that because I just couldn't face it now 
I couldn't possibly face it now. I used to live in Bath and I used to get a walk to the station, which was about a mile and a half, uh, maybe a mile. And then I'd get a train, which was an hour and 40 minutes. And then I'd get the underground for half an hour. And then I'd get into a club and do a five minute spot, open spot. Then I'd get another 40, you know, 40 minutes back to Paddington on the tube. And then I'd do another hour and 40 minutes back to Bath and get back to Bath at two in the morning on the last train back and then walk home and get home at half past two. And I'd do the same the next night and the next night and the next night, night after night. I'd be leaving at 6.30, walking to the station, hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, another half an hour on the tube, a five minute spot back, so back at two, two, quarter past two in the morning, back up the next day, same thing on the train. That week and we for five minute spots, sometimes all open mic nights, sometimes five minute spots on bills that weren't amazing and only 15 people turn up. Just, I could not possibly think about doing it now. But then the whole point is when you're hungry and you're new and you're fired up, you can do that. Clearly, I'm now in a very different position where I'm sort of running clubs and managing comics and doing decent, well-paid work. You know, I, I don't need to do it, so I don't do it, and nobody else does. I mean, all the acts that came through with me, you know, the one that are either professional, not all of them, but a lot of professionals, or some of them, of course, are famous. And uh, Michael McIntyre was running a little club in Richmond when I first met him, which he convent himself, you know. Um, I don't think you're going to find him opening a small club in Richmond now. So what I mean is, Obviously, at the time, Daniel Kitson was crazy. He, he was worth more than me, and which I found hard to believe because I was a bit full on. But uh, I remember talking to Daniel once and he said, how many gigs do you do this month? I said, 28, because I had, because I that month I'd gone a bit crazy. And I remember him saying, lightweight, I've done 30. And I said, well, it is a 31 day month, Daniel. So you must have had a night off because obviously we were having a bit of banter because he was so... <laughs> came to impress upon me that he'd done more than I had. So I said, well, you did have one night off, Daniel, because it was, there were 31 days this month. So clearly you've done 30 at a night off. But Daniel Kitson would literally gig almost every night, every month, almost every night. And the other person that did that was Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr would gig every single night if anybody and do any gig anywhere when he started. So he went to Chesterfield for me and opened a show for nothing, doing 20 minutes. That's one of the reasons Jimmy Carr made it because he was pragmatic and he knew how things worked. And he realized that, of course, you have to be able to afford to do that. I mean, if somebody physically can't afford to go to Chesterfield and do a gig for nothing, then they can't do it. Um, but he had put himself in a position where he had some money saved up specifically with the target of becoming a professional in about a year, approximately, is how he worked. And he'd done the fives and tens for me, open spots. And I had a gig in Chesterfield where the guy said, I've only got a hundred pounds for the whole show. And I should have said no. I mean, a lot of promoters would say, just say no, Jeff. I mean, he wants a proper show for that, not open mic night. He wants a full professional show. But I thought, well, if I close it, because by then I had 30 minutes, I thought, if I close it myself and I can get an open spot that lives up north or two, and then I can get another act to open it for very little money, I could work to, I could make, I think it was 43 pound profit. I worked out all the figures, the amount it cost me to get there. I found a and b for 18 pounds, worked out my train, worked out that I could keep the whole 100 pounds if I could find an opener for no money. And so out of the 100 pounds, I'd make 47 pounds profit because it would cost me 53 pounds for the train and B&B. So I said to him, okay, I'll, I'll do it on a Tuesday night in an upstairs room. And I rang Jimmy and said, there's only one person I can think of who might open a show for me for nothing. And that's you. He said, where is it? I said, Chesterfield. He said, how long do you want? I said, 20 minutes. He said, if I do this, will all my future gigs be paid? 
and pay 20s? I said, yes. He said, okay, I'll, I'll come and open it for nothing. So that bill, Jimmy Carr opened for nothing. Justin Morehouse did the open spot because he was a new act at the time from the North and I closed the show and the landlord paid hundred pounds and I made 47. So that's the sort of thing I did. Uh, some people may not approve, you know, I'm sure there's people out there saying, because I've had these discussions for years rather than people. Some people say, oh, devaluing comedy, you know. They said, you've devalued comedy, Jeff. You've let a guy get a show with Jimmy Carr and Justin Morehouse and you for hundred pounds. Of course, Justin then was a new act, an unknown open spot. And, and even Jimmy wasn't known to the landlord. Even he was still new. But when you look at it retrospectively at how well Jimmy's done and that Justin's very successful, retrospectively that bill looks ridiculous for hundred pounds on a Tuesday but so some people say well Jeff you shouldn't have done it you know because it's devaluing comedy it's like you're even you're working for booking it and doing it for 47 pounds and you've got to go to Chester and back and you've got other people as good as Jimmy doing it for nothing but I said I work in I'm pragmatic I do what what's possible nobody's ever done a gig for me unless they said they're happy to do it nobody if Jimmy Card said no I'm not opening a show for nothing it wouldn't have happened if Justin hadn't taken that spot, it wouldn't have happened. If every other gig I run, if somebody goes to Cornwall for me for 50 pounds, it's because they've said they, they're, they'll do it. Because it's the way it works and people want stage time. And, and I say, look, you don't have to do it. I'm very clear about that. I always say to anybody, if I'm offering a gig in Plymouth for 50 pounds, cash, admittedly, but all the same, and a hotel room, they'll provide you a hotel room. It's not really a hotel, it's a guest house, whatever. It's because that's what they've got. And I'm not, it's not my budget, it's what they've got. And we'd rather have a club there than not. So I'd rather try and book that club. And if you don't want to go to Plymouth for 50 pounds to do 20 minutes and stay in a guest house and have a few beers, don't take it. There's no worries. I've got no problem with you not taking that. Totally understand if you say it's not for me, don't want it. But somebody wants it because there's two or 3,000 comics and somebody says, I do want it, I will take it, fine. So I own, no act has ever done a gig for me against their will. And I've run 12,000 shows on books since I started. 12,000 comedy club gigs I've run since I started. I only know the figures because I did a documentary where they asked me for the figures. So I had to work out how many clubs I had, how often they were run. You know, I had to work out all the figures on bits of paper. So I don't know that. It's not an autistic thing where I can just bring up numbers out of the blue. It's purely because I had to work it out. And I know that I've booked over 12,000 gigs since I started. So that's 12,000 gigs on an average budget of 300 pounds, which works out at around 3.4 million pounds worth of income for comedians. Mm -hmm. So I've created 3.4 million pounds worth of income for comedians as a booker. So, but yet you'll still get the argument, Jeff, you shouldn't be offering somebody only 50 quid for Plymouth. I think, yeah, but look at the overview. Yeah, the overview is I've created three, nearly three and a half million pounds worth of income for comedians since I was on the dole with no money and behind me my rent. It's where I started from. That's what I've done. So isn't that a good thing? That I've come from nothing, not being able to afford a car or a phone, landline or anything else, work out of a phone box to creating three and a half million pounds worth of income for communities. Is that not a good thing? They still say, it's a good thing, yeah, but I still think it's a bit, bit rich. I was offering someone to go to us. <laughs> Nobody has to take a gig. Nobody has to take a gig for me anywhere, ever. They don't want to take it. They don't have to take it. And it's just, I put gigs on and people can take anything they want. And sometimes I'm paying a thousand pounds a night for a closing set. I've got a gig in Horsham. I'm wanting to pay a closer a thousand pounds for a club gig. That's not a corporate gig. It's not a theater, it's a club gig. The closing set is a thousand pounds. So 
I always weigh the whole thing up. Yeah, I've got 50 pound spots in Plymouth uh, with a B&B and a guest house and a few beers thrown in, which some people think is tantamount to an insult to a comedian. But as I said, comics want, some comics want it and they go and they go because they want to go, not because I'm making them go. But I'm offering 500 pound closing sets up in Wisbeach. I'm offering a thousand pound closing sets down in Horsham on club shows. Hmm. So you have to look at me in the whole and look at what I do holistically in the whole and think overall is Jeff Whiting offering a wide spectrum and a decent range of gigs? And yes, I am. And is he offering more than a lot of promoters ever offer? Yes, I am. Is he also offering less than a lot of promoters offer? Yes, I am. Can we choose which we take? Yes, you can. Yeah. That's important. So I feel hopefully that I've done something good for comedy. Um, apart from what being a comic, which I love and I'm privileged to be a comic, it's a privilege to be a comic, to be able to make a living doing it for anybody, however good you are, it's a privilege. Um, but I feel in my other role as a booker, I've done something good for comedy overall. I've made a few mistakes, yes, and I've done a few things people didn't like, yes, but so has every other booker I know. Yeah, yeah. or every other act. I think yeah. I think every act has probably made up to a few people, even the famous people, they've made mistakes along the way. Of course, everybody has, and there's nobody I know in comedy that isn't disliked by somebody. And there isn't anybody in comedy that hasn't fallen out with somebody because there's two or 3,000 comics competing for spots. There's, you know, probably over a hundred promoters, uh, you know, big booking agencies, big uh, agents, obviously the major agencies, Avalon, Off the Curb, Blue Book, Chambers Management. I mean, there, there is no way you can have this number of people um, in a way, trying to take a certain piece of the pie, which is the which is the live work, the touring, the TV work, without people falling out. You will get people competing. And if you compete, which you have to, because it's your job to compete, even whether you're a comic trying to make sure you're good enough to get a next, you know, go from a 10 to a 20 or 20 to a 30, you're competing, not, not with somebody else, with yourself, really, because you're trying to be better than you were last time. I don't think company is competitive in terms of having to be better than the last act. I mean, of course, you want to be the as best you can be. And if that means you are the best act, that's great. But what it means you don't necessarily want to, someone else to fail. Uh, you just want to be as good as you can and keep improving and keep proving you are better and you deserve to do better and get better paid work. And, but I don't think, but, but there is, but there are just personalities. I mean, cause we're all, let's be honest, what you asked earlier about what made you even do it. You know, I played in a band for a living and I was a front man in a band. And you know, a lot of the people that, my fellow comics, as you know, you know the business, ex-actors, uh, ex-street performers, ex-magicians, um, people who are used to being in charge, to be honest. You know, people who are teaching, who are in charge of that class. People who are street performers who can hold a crowd of 400 people doing something on a unicycle. Um, magicians that can do things that blow people away. Well, these aren't shy, retiring people who get on with everybody they meet. No. And nor am I. Nobody is because we have got a certain amount of ego and a certain amount of determination and individuality, which we have to have to have got anywhere, which means occasionally you will find two comics just rub each other up the wrong way. Two comics just don't click. They're both good at what they do. And they, but I mean, I've got examples where I've got mutual. So, for example, I get on very well with um, Alan Francis, fantastic comedian. I mean, genius comedian, Alan Francis. <clears throat> in my opinion, one of the very underrated, my, one of my favourite 10 comedians of all time. 
might even be one of my favourite five comedians of all time, Adam Francis. But he's a close friend with Noel Faulkner, who used to run the Comedy Cafe. And I dislike Noel Faulkner intensely, and he dislikes me intensely. Um, and the reason for that is very simple, is because um, I can't go into the politics because it's it's a bit, even now, it's yeah. a subject nobody discusses. But 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 there was a problem at the Comedy Cafe a long time ago, and I was I was there very regularly as a compere, and I was I was very so, so I was very good at that room. I knew that room. Anybody who was compared by me in that room knew that I could play that room, and I knew how to play that room, and I did it a lot, and I was good at it. I set myself, but. I do know myself and I was good at that room and it was hard to play. Um, and I compared it very regularly for about two or three years. And I was being booked by Hannah Chambers, who's at the time was running the Comedy Cafe. Um, there was then a parting of the ways between Hannah Chambers and Noel Faulkner, who owned the Comedy Cafe, uh, which I had nothing to do with, knew nothing about, and was nothing to do with me whatsoever and was news to me at the time. Uh, but he decided that I was somehow complicit, somehow knew about it, somehow was a very close friend of hers and rang me and said, you'll never perform here again. And I said, I've got, you know, three months dates in the book. He said, you'll never perform here again. It's my club. I said, no offence, but I, I thought I've done a good job. He said, it's nothing to do with that. You know why the reason. And I, you know, well, I can't go into the conversation because it's a bit political, but yeah. I, so I can't go into what was said, but I said, no. I'm just a comic and I can play the room and I've done a good job for you over the years and that's what I want to carry on doing. I have nothing to do with anything else. He said, whatever you're saying, I don't believe anything you're saying. It's my club, you'll never play here again. I said, okay. And then what happened was I must have gone there once about two or three years later. I was doing a gig probably at Backyard, which is nearby, and I think I wandered in, you know, to the bar. Um, I think so. I saw someone I knew through the window, you know, at the bar, whether it was, I can't remember who it was, it might have been someone like Martin Davis, or it might have been, uh, could have been uh, Tim Clark, or lots of comics, uh, who waved. So, of course, I walked in and they said, oh, Jeff, yeah. I said, I've come from, I said, oh, no. do you want a beer? And I was just about to say yes, and Noel appeared and said, you're banned. Get out of the building. You're not allowed in this building. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought, oh. I, just, I, said, I thought I just couldn't perform. He said, you don't understand what I'm telling you. You're not allowed. I don't want to see your face again. You're not allowed in this building. And then following that, he sent me a, a message saying, if I'm in a room and you walk in, walk out. I don't want you in the same room as me, anywhere, ever. So that's the point at which I said, sorry, Noel, that's not happening. Because I'm in the business. I've been in the business a long time myself now. And if I walk into a, an industry party and you're in the room, I'm not going anywhere. You can stay or leave, it doesn't matter to me, but I'm not going anywhere. Not, that's not happening. That's not your club. That's not your territory. It's not happening. And the first time I walked into a room and he was there, I didn't go anywhere. And in the end, he decided to defer and not leave, but just put up with the fact he had to be in the same building as me for a period of time. All this over a misunderstanding that wasn't my fault. Hmm. So as I say, I, I, I don't talk about these things much, but I'm trying to illustrate that Adam Francis is a close friend of both me and of Knowles. There are many comics who love Noel Faulkner because he had a great room, which he did. The cafe was a great room. I combined it for three years. It's a brilliant room. Um, he used to have a snooker table upstairs before my time where all the comics would go after their shows in London, would go and collect a bit like in Edinburgh. They'd all go up to this room upstairs. They held about 40 people, I believe. And they'd all go post London gigs and meet at the cafe and go upstairs to the pool room and chat about their gigs and have drinks, which is fantastic. I totally applaud that. That's an amazing thing for comedy. It's a brilliant thing to do, and Noel did that. 
understandably, people thought it was fantastic. And it was obviously Noel's idea and Noel's doing. Um, the club was brilliant, great to play. He sold out all the time, fantastic room. Gave loads of comedians loads of work. Like I said, he created a lot of income for a lot of comedians. So it, it, it's strange in comedy, you can have someone like Noel, who has done a masses for comedy, ran one of the best gigs in London for a very long time, had one of the best post-gig rooms to go and have a drink and play pool and talk after shows that was notorious, did so much positive stuff for comedy. And me at my side, who went from being on the dole with no money and nothing, and built up a hundred clubs and have given created three and a half million pounds worth of income for comedians, don't get on with each other at all. And that if Noel had his way, he wouldn't have even been in the same room at the same time. And yet people can like both of us. People like Alan are friends with both of us. There's numerous comics that get on incredibly well with me and are also close friends of Noel's. So it's just the way this business is. That's just one small microcosm, one example of how it works. So there are going to be comics that I don't want to be in, particularly in the same dressing room with, and there'll be comics that don't want to be in the room with me. Not many, I mean, probably, to be honest, four or five. As they say, you can count them on the fingers as one hand, which you can. There's probably less than five comics anywhere that I wouldn't particularly want to be in the dressing room with. And there's probably about the same number one would be in one with me. So that's not bad, considering I've done 7,600 gigs since I started. So another number I happen to know. So, you know, it's not, it's not a huge number. But what I mean is you can't get people who are going to promote gigs, run gigs, manage comics, go out on stage, who haven't got some sort of drive and determination and individuality. And the fact is that if you get two people with that, and they're competing at one point over anything, whether it's to get one of their acts a job, whether it's to be the booker for a venue, there's gonna be a clash because one of those people will get that job booking that venue and one won't, or one person will get that, their act that job and the other one won't. Or one person will end up booking a theater and the other one won't, and you will get clashes. Um, mostly, I would say people are very civilized. I mean, mostly, I think everybody I've come across has been pretty civilized um, and, are very approachable and if there's ever an issue they make me aware and we talk it over and try and work it out but yeah. understandably sometimes you open a venue and it turns out somebody has a venue a mile away which you're not always aware of because it's very difficult if you're going all around the country to be aware of every venue in every part of the country especially in the north which i i don't live in the north uh or if it's way out towards suffolk or somewhere you know sometimes you're not aware of precisely who's running what um and usually if you open a gig, somebody will send you a message and say, actually, I run a gig, you know, but a mile down the road, and, you know, blah, blah. And so you talk it through and do you say, well, okay. And then you have to make decisions and you say, well, the promoter of this venue is very, very determined to run it. And if I don't book it, he'll look for another booker. In the end, somebody will book it. But obviously I could suggest that he talks to you because you've got a gig in the area already and maybe you can book it. So it depends. So I've deferred sometimes and passed leads to other people. And sometimes people have deferred to me when they've opened a gig. Somebody once opened a gig, literally six doors down for one of my gigs Oof. in the same road. Uh, it, it's not just it's not just that I've done it uh, and often, always by mistake. I never intentionally target. What I never do is target somewhere. I never look at a place and target a place. So for example, all my leads come through word of mouth and through contacts and through me letting people know in general that I can book comedy shows. What I don't do is look at say Coventry and target Coventry or look at Derby and target, I never do that. But I think people think you've done that and that's the problem, the perception. So what happens is they think you have and then they take umbrage. So if I had a phone call from tomorrow from somebody in Coventry saying, I've got a really nice basement bar in Coventry, could you put a show on? 
it's 350 pound budget, you know, put some acts in and a couple of new acts. I think, yeah, great. That, that sounds great. You know, I wouldn't, haven't targeted Coventry. I've just had a call from someone happens to be, for example, this is an example, it hasn't happened, but it's an example. But if I then booked a show, some would say, oh, Jeff's targeted Coventry, you know, and there's already a club in Coventry, you know, three miles away, the other side of town. So Jeff's obviously thought Coventry is good. There's a good club there. I'll open up in competition. That's nothing, absolutely not what's happened at all. The promoter of the club might have thought, I'd like to open a club and run comedy and commentary. And he knows, but I don't. So what I mean is I don't target. I never target other clubs, other promoters and other, other cities. I don't do it at all. I just get incoming inquiries from the fact I'm always telling people, I'm here, I'd love to book for you. All my inquiries are incoming. In other words, I never go out looking for venues. I never go drive around the town. I, <clears throat> I would never drown, drive like around the town and say, walk into pubs at random and say, have you got a room upstairs? I'll open a gig. I'd never done that, ever. But I think people think I do. I think it's a misconception. I think they think I look at what's going on and think, right, I can run a really great club in that city or I can run a great club in this place or, or there's a guy running a club in uh, this town, but it's, it's terrible. The bills are awful. I can go and open a better club. I don't do that. I've never done that, ever. But I think it's very easy. You can understand the perception for the other side is, I've been running a club here for years. So I need Jeff Whiting's open. Now, what's he doing? Is he targeting me? I'm, I, I'm usually not even aware they're there. And if I am, then I talk to them and try and work out how we're going to deal with it hmm. and try and come to an amicable conclusion. Sorry, I've gone a bit off, off tangents. <laughs> I'm not easy to do a podcast with. <laughs> no, Everyone ask, ask some questions you'd like to know the answers to. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, digressing. There is, a, there is a few things that you have spoken of that re relate to what I've said before what I sent to you in regards to questions that are but in a different sort of way so um in, in terms of I mean you mentioned about how booking and being a performer has sort of helped and hindered you and I think you just mentioned that there in terms of like how you're gonna irks occasionally irk some people you just got to get on with it yeah uh, but what what would you say when you're getting acts applying for gigs like, what would you say is the comedy style of people now as opposed to back then? Because I've, I've... Um, well, obviously, before I started, there were people like Alexis Sale and, the, you know, all the alternative comics, if you want to call them that. But that was before I started. Um, then Jeremy Hardy, sort of very political, um, quite absurd, acerbic political I knew Jeremy because I went to school with Jeremy so I went to see Jeremy at the Tunnel Club in 1982 and the Tunnel Club was run by Malcolm Hardy and was was a fiercer club than Up the Creek I mean the Tunnel Club made Up the Creek look relatively easy uh, it was just fearsome the Tunnel Club and I went to see Jeremy there maybe in 83 uh, because he invited me to go and I went with a friend and I wasn't in comedy I was playing in bands um, but literally people would throw bottles it was actually almost traditional, they'd throw bottles and they had a brick wall behind the act. So sometimes they'd smash or they'd hit the wall and fall on the ground and the acts almost had to dodge the bottles. It was almost part of the vibe. Um, my, Malcolm Hardy created that crazy sort of vibe. That's what he did. And um, when Jeremy was on, somebody threw a Pills lager bottle at him. That doesn't really exist now, that particular brand. But anyway, and it just, it just missed him. He, he went, moved slightly, it hit the wall and uh, he just put him down and carried on. And because I'd never been to a comedy club, it was my first time I was amazed. I thought, my God, surely he's going to storm off. Or he just, I said, hang on, mate, and put him down and then carried on. God. Uh, and famously, Malcolm Hardy was uh, told by the council at one point, you, people can throw bottles, but only plastic. 
because the word got out that people were throwing glass bottles at the acts pretty well every week. So he was told he, he could be shut down because of this behaviour. Uh, but and he complained and said, yes, part of the answer. They said, OK, we'll compromise. People can throw plastic bottles, but they can't throw glass bottles. So people would still throw a plastic bottle. I didn't say whether it had to be empty. <laughs> I'd imagine a plastic bottle full of Coca-Cola could be quite dangerous if it hit you in the head. But anyway, so they were then told to throw plastic bottles. I mean, it's a crazy setup. But getting back to the point. So there was Frederick Benson who used to get out of a coffin. A coffin would be wheeled on and then the lid would open and he'd get out of it dressed in silver paint. That was all going on in 83. I mean, that's something now you probably wouldn't see at a local club, you know, be pretty hard to pull off. But he was doing that. Les Bubb was doing weird stuff. It was all crazy. But but that was before my time. But that's when I was just watching some comedy. Um, but when I started, um, I don't, it wasn't completely different. I mean, Steve Merchant was doing some sort of interesting stuff. Russell Howard was riffing with the crowd a lot. Not as much material as he had now. But even then, Russell Howard, you know, talked about his mum, talked about his dog. He still does that now. I mean... You know, I, I mean, obviously he's gone to a different level, but I mean, his material was really him saying, I'm from Bristol and, you know, stories about going down to the sandwich shop and uh, the mum said this and, uh, you know, we've got the, you know, he used to talk about the same sort of stuff and was a, you know, observational comic. Rod Gilbert um, changed. He started off as a sort of whimsical comic and then changed to more of an angry, uh, in a funny way, because I think Rod's fantastic. But when Rod started, he did this whimsical thing of talking about being from a Welsh village, and it was all, um, you know, it was very slow and very, very, you know, my grandmother, you know, plays in goal. We play football in the gardens. You know, we uh, we have a lot of football, you know, and all this, and we had to use a dead uh, badger stuffed with custard. You know, he used to do that sort of thing, and people would think this is a bit weird. But he was definitely had something because the audience liked it, and he was very funny. But it was nothing like. Then there was a shift at some point because Rob was brilliant anyway, even when he was doing the whimsical stuff, to where he went to the, you know, he come out, you know, with the handle of the suitcase missing and the mince pie and certain motorway services. He, he changed to the angry, All right, you know, what's going on? You know, why, why do I have to have a timer on an on a, on a electric toothbrush? You know, what's wrong? What are people doing? Brushing for two hours? You know, he used to, he changed to a completely different style, but he was still brilliant. Um, but his style changed. Um, Peter Kay was on the circuit as a 10 minute spot when I started. So Peter Coe was just doing 10 minute open spots and then 10 minute paid spots. But he had the same style then. He has obviously he hasn't changed. But in terms of what a new act would do, I suppose, is what you're asking, you know, because those acts have started then and carried on. I suppose if I see a new act now, um, it, the subject matter changes, obviously, clearly. I mean, if you look at a new act now, social media has got to be, is almost certainly in the set. Social media of some sort, apps, social media, dating apps, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, you know, TikTok, it, that material will be in their set, didn't exist when I started. Um, references to global warming, nobody was really talking about in 97. References, you know, so a lot of reference points have changed. So a lot of material is about different subject matter and reference points. And obviously we've had the whole Me Too movement, transgender, non-binary. This is all completely, this is now quite current in people's sets. It didn't exist in 97. Sadly, in a way, because I'm sure some people felt that they were non-binary or whatever, but it didn't really exist. So you didn't have people saying, talking about, you know, non-binary or transgender or rights for people to, you know, none of it was existed. So clearly the subject matter has changed. The other thing is it's less political. That's the main thing I'd say. Because in 97, there was still that sort of anti-Tory feeling, which was left over from Mrs Thatcher. So in 97, there was still a lot of political material. 
Um, like I did a gig with Mark Thomas the, the night of Lady Diana's funeral. Um, and Mark Thomas was always political anyway, very political, but he was typical of a comic from that time. Yeah, Mark Thomas was very funny, but very, very political and very, very hard hitting. Obviously, Stuart Lee and other people who've done it before and since, you know, did it at the same time and have done it since. But, but what I mean is then it was quite normal. It, that didn't stand out as being that. I mean, it don't mean he was different, Mark Thomas, because he was very good at it and, and a, a lot better at it than some. But it, what I mean is the fact he was talking about politics wasn't surprising. So he would come out and say, oh, that gig, because that's why I remember it so clearly as an open spot, which I was, I was terrified of even mentioning Lady Diana to having do a, to do a gig that night in London. So, of course, I just avoided it completely. But he was headlining, he came on and said, oh, he said that was all organised by Prince Charles, you know. He's probably dancing on the lid of that coffin now, you know, and even then the crowd were going, oh, I don't know if you can say that. Even the crowd there, and that's Mark Thomas, who was already a well-known comic and people liked him. Even then the audience were going, oh, I'm not, uh, not quite sure. Uh, I don't know if we, can we laugh at that? I mean, you know, I mean, ironically, Mark Thomas was obviously prophetic because the idea that Prince Charles and the royal family may have had anything to do with Princess Diana being killed was not even, it, nobody even, it wasn't in the ether. The idea that that could have been the case wasn't even being dared to be thought of by anybody at that point when he made that comment. Okay. But he did say that. <laughs> said he would be dancing on the lid of the coffin of a coffin later on. And people were like, oh, what? It's nice. <laughs> but anyway, getting to the point. It was more political. So you'd get a lot of comics. Jer Jer Jeremy Hardy was still around, then he was political. Uh, Mark Thomas political, Mark Steele was political. Uh, Richard Herring, you know, there was a lot more politics. And new comics, when they started, thought I'd need to do politics. So in 97, if you started, you'd think, need to talk a little bit about the unions or about politics or about human rights or about, you know? Now, new comics just think I need 10 minutes that's funny about you know, being on Tinder or about, um, you know, uh, my Instagram page or about, um, you know, whether it's right to have toilets where men and women mingle together in unisex toilets or whether we shouldn't or, you know, all things that are current and uh, weren't going on in 97. But very, it's much rarer now to get a comic, new comic come out and say, they might, yeah, Don Donald Trump was different. Everybody talked about him because he was a giant sort of character and a cartoon figure almost. But in general, so people would come out and talk about Donald Trump, but in general, they won't come on and immediately say, oh, you know, what about this vaccine rollout? You know, they tend, to, they will do it somewhere, but it's not a big part of the set and it's not crucial and it's not the main drive, you know? I think some of the comics from 97 now would be up there talking about vaccines, should we have them or not, vaccine pass, which should we have, in a funny way, but they'd be hitting the, should we have protests, shouldn't we, what about Extinction Rebellion, this or that, what about vaccine, this or that, should we be made to have it, do, we, do kids have vaccines, you know, what about the way that, you know, there'd be loads of that people sets in 97. Now, you can watch a lot of new acts and they don't even talk, it doesn't come up at all. Hmm. It's all relationships, relationships, uh, as I said, social media, what's happening in the news, maybe football, but they're not specifically political. There was a lot more politics. Okay. Nice. Now, I've got one more question to ask. And like, and as you gather, my answers seem to go on for about 10 minutes, don't they? Sorry, I do apologise. Right. Uh, what's, uh, how do you manage the admin of like running all these different clubs? And how do you, what, what's your process for booking? different kinds of gigs. So if you're booking a playhouse, if you're booking yeah. a children's party, or if you're booking a geezer's football club. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I have done all of those, as you might have guessed. Um, 
I, I think what it is, I, 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 I know my acts quite well. I mean, I, I, nobody can know everybody now, as you know, Marvin, because you know how I many, it, it has exploded, hasn't it? You know, I mean, just before COVID, especially the scene had exploded. In a weird way, COVID has culled it slightly, um, in the sense some people have actually dropped out of comedy permanently just because they ended up thinking, well, if they were just starting to get paid, it was too difficult to continue at all. And then they got a full-time job and the job worked out well and they decided to stay in the job. But so it, it, it has, so the numbers are a tiny bit lower at the moment, not, not much, but a bit lower than they were, but there was an explosion, you know, uh, about 2018, 19, where there were, I put a, a, a list of gigs up on social media to say, could anybody do an open spot? And I'd, I'd have 90 people in for one open spot. Because that's the that's the number of people out there, you know. Uh, so I can't know all of them. I, nobody can know ninety open spots, but I can. I might know fifty of them or forty of them, or what they do, or have seen a video or seen them live. So I'll know 45, 50 out of nine. So 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 I am very careful. I do put a lot of thought into it. I mean, I mean, I, I think every booker does. I'm not suggesting nobody else does. I'm sure most bookers do. I think there's one or two bookers that I wouldn't name that I think tend to throw together bills too quickly. I wouldn't name them. But for example, uh, I've seen bills where you've got two Northern Irish comics back to back and there are maybe only six out there and you know, I know and you know, the middle comic will talk about the troubles in Ireland, Belfast, the IRA, whatever, uh, potatoes, whatever else, but they will because they will. And then the second Northern Irish act is thinking, what the hell is going on here? I've got a set I've re-prepared, written already that I can't change and it's going to overlap with 80% of what that guy just said. Who booked that bill? Well, I know who booked that bill, but I won't tell you because that was a bill that actually happened. Um, uh, I was putting another bill with three black acts and me comparing that wasn't a black show. Now it's fine. Obviously you get deaf down, you get black comedy shows and sometimes black comedy nights have a guest white act, which is great, which is a great thing. So they'll they'll put on a, someone like Damien Clark because Damien Clark's what I call a rock and roll comic. You know, Damo can come on and go, how's it going guys? He can lay into anybody. He doesn't care what's happening and he doesn't matter if he's on after three black guys who have just killed it in front of a massive black crowd doesn't bother him. Um, and it's nice that people do that. But what I mean is this, this bill was not, this was just a normal club night and three black guys all from the same part of London and me comparing. But I thought, well, they must know that these guys have got something in common. They're going to cover some of the same sort of ground about where they live, musical influences, culture, how they were brought up, you know, surely three in a row is not the same as you wouldn't want three white guys in a row you wouldn't want three of anything in a row because the third act is struggling if you put three unless it's so if it's an asian night or a black night which i've booked which is odd because i'm obviously white but i've booked black shows and i've booked asian nights quite a lot of asian nights particularly but i've booked all black shows and i've booked uh, all asian shows i've booked asian and black shows and i've booked all gay nights i've booked for gay because when you're a booker you get asked to do anything and as long as you know the people it's fine i've, I've, I've been right up to say yeah can you book a gay, a gay night show yeah fine i can send you a gay comparing six gay acts yeah male and female whatever no problem i get rung up can you book a transsexual act or a drag i can book yeah whatever um, so what i'm trying to say is the point is you can book anything but when you're booking surely it should occur to you when you're booking two northern irish acts one after the other when there's only about six out there and we know what they cover. You know, three black guys in a row, no women, no white, and we're just a white compare, no females, no Asian acts, no white acts, nothing. Just the third act is gonna think a lot of this has been covered, the sort of thing I'm gonna talk about. And same thing, so with bills, I try to mix them up. That's my point. The point is, 
I think there's most bookers do that. I mean, to be fair, you know, I'm on other people's bills and the bills are nicely mixed up. You know, I was doing backyard last week and there was a really good mixture of bills. You know, that, that, that was really nice. You know, I had a nice mixture of people, you know, different people from different countries, different cultures, black, white, Asian, you know, there was a great mix of acts. So whoever booked that, book was a great bill um, and mixed it up well. And that's what I try and do. That's my point. I do think though, occasionally I see a bill at a club and I think that's a bit of lazy booking there because that third act's going to struggle because they're on with two acts before them that do almost the same thing as them. Three guitar acts in a row, you wouldn't do that, would you? But I was on a bill where they put two guys who played the ukulele on the same bill and they had one in the middle and one closing. Both played ukuleles and they actually said to the promoter, I won't say who it was, I never named names apart from, possibly I did mention Mr Faulkner earlier, but otherwise I don't name names very often, but um, he's an exception. But um, basically, um, this promoter had put the ukulele acts in the middle and closing and me as the opener. So clearly they both went to the promoter and said, put Jeff in the middle. And they said, no, it doesn't work like that. And that's when they said, he's the newest act and the newest act is always on first. And they said, look, we're in the dressing room. We both got ukuleles. We both desperately want Jeff in the middle because then it breaks up. And they said, no, sorry, can't do it. They said, this is madness. You know? we're going to go back to back and the second one which was gavin webster who's a great guy and played the ukulele at the time in this set he's going to struggle and he's great but he's going to go on up please put jeff in the middle no nope, i'm not doing that so i was made to go on first so i did and i stayed and watched the show in the middle act went on and did very well and gavin came on and when he got the ukulele there was literally just booing immediately last <laughs> did that. what are you doing mate the last person did that do something else so you can get bookers that do things like that and you think what's happening there I don't mean every bill I've ever booked is perfect because someone might listen to this and think I wasn't a bill that Jeff books and I'm sure there were two you know whatever I may have made I may have got it wrong sometimes I've booked a lot of shows but I try to mix it up so I try and mix up and for the rooms as you say there are some people uh, I just mentioned Damien Clark the guy can just handle any crowd you can lay into anybody you put him in front of a bunch of guys at a football club no problem rugby club no problem Nick Page uh, and I represent Nick, is one of those. Nick Page can go anywhere. You could send him in to do a gig for the SAS, which I did. And he, he managed to do a 15 minute set in front of the SAS, which probably felt like three hours because they were absolutely, you know, wired. And he had to try and cope with them for 15 minutes, which he managed. And he went for a drink with them afterwards and they gave him a good review, um, which was um, very difficult to achieve. But so, so someone like Nick Page, you can send anywhere. You can send him to rugby club football club but he can also play an art center because nick's versatile he's very good at doing that mixing it up um but say so you get people like damo you get people um and just consummate professionals someone like tim clark mark mayer in stone all these guys who can just play more or less any room know what they're doing but then you'll get people who are um more specific as you say someone who you know an art center would assume you know you look at an act and think what they're doing is better for them and me if they're in an art centre, you know, if in a theatre or an art centre, because they are doing some complex stuff. They want the audience to listen. That crowd are more interested in listening and more purveyors of upmarket, you know, whereas it wouldn't be, it wouldn't do them a favour to stick them in front of 50, 60 rugby players. Wouldn't do them a favour either, me or them. Um, and then you get your male-female split. I try and put women, a woman on every single bill because only 20% of comics are women. That is the split. I mean, you can look at it. It's very easy to work it out, but it is. I mean, I can look at my emails coming in and I could look at 500 names come in for a list I've put out and 100 will be women and 400 will be guys. Guaranteed. That's almost 100% accurate every week. So 20% of comics are women. We're trying to increase that number. 
when I say we, I think all promoters and all bookers and all agents yeah. want women. I represent quite a lot of female comics, uh, about seven or eight out of 20 are women that I represent. So I'm trying to get to a 50-50 situation with my agency where half my acts are female. So, but only 20% of comics on the circuit are actually women. So, but I try and get a woman on every bill if I can. But obviously you could argue technically if it's only three people on the bill, you're having to overcompensate to get a woman on that bill because only one in five is a woman. But anyway, so I occasionally do have an all-male bill because it can happen, and I but I do desperately try not to. I even move acts around deliberately to try and make sure there's a woman on a bill. If I spot a lineup we've booked and there isn't a woman on it, I try to adjust it and ask one of the acts if they'll change dates to put a woman on that show. Obviously, you want to mix up your ethnicities. So if there's guys from, uh, the, whether it's Asian acts, black acts, whether it's acts from America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, people over from Spain, people from German comedians, France, anywhere, Norway, Sweden, you just try and mix it up. So I love mixing my bills up. And regarding a bit like being a chef, you know, I try and mix bills up where I think they will work. <laughs> well, it is, it, it is, it, it's a bit like being a chef because you're saying, to, you're thinking to yourself, well, I know what that guy does. You know, he's from Romania. I mean, Radu is that very good act indeed. Exceptionally good. Saw him very early on indeed because I saw him in Bucharest, uh, but doing his act in English for an expat audience uh, before he came here. And he's incredibly good Radu. but anyway you know Radu he'll and I know what he does so I think Radu will come on he's Romanian he does this uh, maybe then we've got a, a gay female comic on she does something totally different then we've got a black guy on who does a lot of stuff about urban stuff or he does stuff about R&B music or he does stuff about whatever else or he does something about sport or he does something about whatever he's into and then I, I know what he does and then I've got another person on that talks about politics and I've got another person on that does something with a guitar at the end whatever you just try and mix the bills up think like the audience think would I want to see four straight white men in a row? No. No. But would I want to see, necessarily, four black acts in a row? Unless I'm at a black comedy night, probably not. Would I want to see four of anything in a row, four gay acts in a row? Probably act four is thinking, oh my God, the other three guys are all gay as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. What have I got left? You know, it's for this, it's both for the audience's sake and the act's sake that you mix your bills up. Because the comics would much rather go on up to someone different to them and change it up. And the audience would rather see something different and not keep seeing the same thing. There's one thing that I'd like to add to it. Do you know someone called Sean Eli from New York? No. Okay, he's he's supposed to be the biggest like booker of theatre shows in New York. And he right. well, you see, you've got me there, Marvin, you see, I mean, <laughs> um, your contacts go beyond mine. Uh, I don't know, no, I don't know. But he, he mentioned something. He, he uh, messaged me through Matchmaker, which links a lot of podcasts and other people together. And he said that um, he was on a bill. Exactly what you said there. They're all talking about sex and other jokes, or about being gay. And then, like he was, it was only him and another female comic who was also a lesbian. But mm -hmm. he and they did different stuff, and they were the only two that did well. Was yeah. Was. yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. It, it's not just for the audience's sake. It's as I say, it's for the comic's sake. I mean, to complete that story where the two Northern Irish acts followed each other. And I won't name the club or the booker, but the second one walks off after two minutes of a 30 minute set. Okay. That's what actually happened. Because the, the guy that went on in the middle did the 20 minutes all about Ireland, the Troubles, the IRA, Belfast, because it was in his set and he, that, you know, what do you expect the guy to do? He couldn't do anything else, that's what he does. The other guy reluctantly came on to close. I was, I was comparing uh, because 
he had no choice and he had a set about exactly the same subject matter obviously some slightly different jokes but very much the same subject and he walked on and as soon as he started speaking they started burning because he had the same accent and he says i'm from Northern Ireland." they started saying, oh we've heard all this he mentioned the ira so we've heard this then they started started starting potato which is you know a bit it is a stronger insult than some people may understand you know for irish people i've gathered that through being a comic um you know it can be a can be perceived as quite a serious insult if you have spent your whole life being brought up in Ireland and you're, you know, proud to be Irish and whatever it can be. So after these various boos and comments of that somebody else has already done all this, uh, there was shouts of potato and various other racial slurs. And after two minutes, he said, "Fuck this! I don't need the money." Put the mic in the stand and walked off. <laughs> That's what happens when you book two Northern Irish acts one after the other. No. Yeah. So, you know, as a booker, but the, sorry, Marvin, the point I would make that, that is actually relevant, to be fair, because I do waffle quite a lot, but what is relevant is being a booker and a comic is very helpful. Because as a comic, you see things that go wrong left, right and centre when shows aren't booked correctly. Helps you book better yourself because you've witnessed what happens when you're on a bill when the acts, the booking is perhaps not as it could be. Um, and it helps you as a booker because you see pitfalls that have occurred where you've been booked to go somewhere by somebody else and they've put two Northern Irish acts on in a row or they've put whatever else, four acts that all do the same thing in a row and you think this is all wrong when you're the compare because you're in the middle of it thinking this isn't working, all the acts are unhappy in the dressing room, this is terrible. So it does help you being a comic and a booker. With being and a comic gives you a perspective on what, how it all works. And you see acts perform and you yeah. see what they're capable yeah. you even, of. You even know which acts get on together. I know which acts don't want to be in the same dressing room. As I mentioned earlier, hopefully in my case, I can only think of about three or four comics I'd rather not really be in a dressing room with and don't get on with. And I'm hoping it's only about the same four or five that wouldn't want to be in one with me. But I also know others that won't, that don't like each other <laughs> independently of me. And I know not to put them on the same bill because it's come up, you know. And some comics do this, by the way. I mean, you, you may have had it yourself, you may not, but on professional bills, not open mic night bills, but on professional bills, frequently, especially headliners, will say, who are the other acts? Ah, uh, yes, especially women. And, yes, and you have to send, or not send, tell them on the phone or text or message, whatever, medium, and let them know. And sometimes they say, sorry, I don't work with that comic. They'll be one of the names that stands out to them. They say, I don't work with that comic. So I can't do the show. And then you have to decide, do I move that comic and replace them to have that headliner? Or do I think, well, that's not fair on that comic. I can't book that headliner. I'm not saying there's many, but there are people that do it. I'm not saying who, and I'm not saying it's the same person all the time. It could be a one-off random thing. And to be fair, often these people, there's only going to be two or three names out of the entire sphere that they won't work with. So I'm not saying they're prima donnas, because it may only be two or three different people that they wouldn't work with. But if one of them comes up, they just won't take the gig. They say I'm not willing to work with that act on the same bill. So it goes on. It's a very low level thing and it's very rare, but it does go on. So as a booker, you have to start learning and you start remembering it. And the other one, the other classic is comedy couples, people who've been out with another comedian. But it is, it's a classic. And, and, but they always tell you. So if you get a, two comics going out in a relationship and then they split up, which has happened in various cases, um, they're very honest. One of them will ring you up and say, I'll be absolutely honest, can you just not put them in the same bill with so-and-so, their ex? I say, I'm not saying I'm being a prima donna. I'm just saying clearly for me and them, it's awkward. It's not going to help the show. It's not going to help my mood, their mood. It's not going to help, you know. And then, and then sometimes, a few years later, 
when they've become mates and they've calmed down and everything's moved on, they run up and say, actually, by the way, we get on all right now. And they actually update you and say, we've, we've, all, we've both moved on, we get on all right now. So if you want to put us in the same bill, it won't matter anymore. So sometimes you get an update, but for a period, <laughs> you can't put them on the same bill because they are going to kick off in the dressing room or it's too, too risky. So you learn all this stuff and you learn, keep it all in the back of your mind and your head. And when you're looking at lists of names for gigs, you think, oh, no, not those two. They used to go out and um, they're still having problems no, not on that bill. I have to add one thing to that. It would be an absolutely hilarious comedy sketch if a guy and a girl couple, like a guy telling a joke about that female comic, like former couple, and she goes up on stage and gives him a slap. I mean, that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, you know, anything can happen. We all know that Jim <laughs> Jeffries got punched on stage in the comedy store a long time back. Yeah, uh, which was caught on camera and uh, I think got fifty thousand views. But uh, anything can happen at a comedy club. Um, um, but but that but it's it's fantastic. It's a privilege to do it. It's a privilege to do it. I mean, it doesn't matter how many hours I've driven up and down the country, killed myself doing it, and how many hours other people have, which they have. Daniel Kitson, I said, Jimmy Carr, Russell Howard. Russell Howard, again, massively hard worker. The guy works like a maniac when he started. Russell Howard worked well, pretty well tirelessly to get himself around the circuit and get seen and get known. Uh, Steve Merchant, obviously, in a different way with his writing, worked for years writing and writing and writing to get the office away and get other things done. So. I'm not claiming I'm some sort of guy that's worked really hard and nobody else has. Uh, everybody's worked very hard, but I'm just saying for all of us, it's still a privilege, I think. You know, it, 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 I've worked incredibly hard and I'm sure, as I said, most of the comics on TV and most of the comics touring have worked hard, but there's still going to be, for us, another lot of people that didn't make it, that were good comics, that just didn't get seen, didn't get a chance. And I'm, I know that, everybody knows that. Everybody remembers a comic they worked with that was brilliant and thinks, what happened to them? And they just didn't get picked up and they just couldn't take the rejection and they just got fed up and thought, that's it, I'm going to get a job. So it is a privilege to do this for a living and, and to be able to book shows, which I do. And it's even more of a privilege to represent comics, which I do, to be able to help try and shape the careers to some degree of, of really good comics that I've seen that I've signed that I really think I've got something and it's 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 a privilege but it's also a responsibility and you've got to work really hard on it and as you were saying about the admin i do have a team i have jenny and lynn um lynn is funny because everybody always thinks of lynn from um alan partridge um and it's funny because her name is lynn but it's just i never remember because i know her so well and she works for me on act management i never occur, it doesn't occur to me and often i'll say to somebody uh oh i'll just give lynn a call and they say oh yeah alan partridge eh? I said, what? Alan Partridge, you know, his assistant was Lynn. I said, I never remember that. Anyway, but I've got Jenny and Lynn who are great uh, because I couldn't do it without them because um, they run, uh, Jenny runs the club booking side with me and between the two of us, it's pretty full time. And then Jenny also looks after some of the acts herself, which is a big commitment. And then Lynn looks after the other acts and they're really great um, people and I couldn't do it without them. And then I've got a couple of other people that do part-time work for me as well. Uh, Arian's one of those and a couple of others that are very good and, and help me and uh, without the team I couldn't do it impossible I mean you can't possibly do what I'm doing without a team of at least you know three people or whatever because it's impossible um, but they're great and they're all girls so I'm an equals opportunity person all my team are women and seven or eight of my comics I represent are women out of 20 and I make sure I get a female comic on every bill and if I can I, I will um, always promote diversity as I said I've I represent two gay comics, I represent an Asian comic, I represent two black comics, you know, I, I'm, and I, I'm very keen indeed on inclusion and diversity, very, very keen. 
and I've met some fantastic people. I remember meeting Reginald D. Hunter for the first time when he just arrived in England in 98. And that guy was brilliant from day one. I don't know how Reg did that. People thought he was a ringer. You know, they thought he'd been doing it in the States and launched himself as a sort of new new act because he was oh, doing that. happens a lot, doesn't it? But he, yeah, but, but he wasn't. I mean, every, I can assure you because Reg has now become so well known. There's been... 20 years for people to do the research. He hadn't done stand-up in the States. He'd, done, he'd been an actor and he'd been to acting school, but he hadn't done it. He wrote a set specifically for the UK for like being a black American in, in the UK. Specifically, that was his angle. I'm from the States, I'm from the deep South, I'm black. I'm now living in Birmingham, which is where he went to first. And um, I remember seeing, I saw him at his second ever gig by chance. I was just there doing a 10 minute spot and he took the roof off. And I was quite insulted because I'd, I'd been going about a year and done about 300 gigs. And I remember saying to him, how long have you done? He said, well, this is my second gig. I said, what, the second gig in the UK? He said, no, my second ever gig. I said, this is before he went on. I said, your second ever gig? He said, yeah, so I've just come to the UK, I'm just starting. I said, what are you doing? He said, I did acting, but I've never done stand-up. It was my second gig. I did one last week. I said, okay. And he went on and he absolutely took the roof off. He absolutely stormed the gig. And the guy after rushed up to me and said, I'm going to pay you for now for everything I've got. And I, it was my 300th gig and I was still doing it for nothing. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I've got a long way to go. My God, this guy has completely taken the roof off this gig. I was on before him doing 10, my 300th 10, and I did well. He went on after me and just took the roof off. It was his second gig. That's why at that point I started booking him myself. I only had three clubs, but obviously having seen it, I said to him, Reg, will you headline Plymouth? He said, yeah, 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 man. Bath, yeah. Farnham, yeah. There are only three clubs I had. Put him in to close all of them. Close, because I, I said, how long can you do it? He said, oh, at least 20. I said, could you do 25? He said, yeah, of course. Could. Yeah, no worries. So I booked him to close everything I had on it up from seeing his second gig. Fuck. And in 1998, end of 98, Reg asked me to be his manager, and I said no. Like the man who turned down the Beatles. Oh, man. What a story. But then, by then, I had a lot more clubs, and I'd given Reg about maybe half of all his work. Because I just because I'd seen him early, so I just booked him for everything I had, everything that came in. I booked Reg to close straight away because he was brilliant and he was and the, the, the fees weren't huge, so it suited us both. So it meant that I could get a fantastic act for seventy pounds, and Reg was still earning seventy pounds because a lot of people didn't know who he was and weren't booking him. So about half his work was for me in the first year, something like that. So he, we were having a coffee in Farnham where I live now, and he said, uh, "Would you be my agent, just my manager?" And I said, "I can't, Reg. I, I don't know how to do it." He said, well, he said, you're doing a great job already. I said, yeah, but I'm not an agent. I'm not set up for it. I said, you need a different agent. Someone who knows what they're doing. He said, yeah, but, you know, you, uh, half my work's coming from you. He said, you know, you, we've got a good relationship as well. You know, why don't you become my manager? I said, sorry, Reg, I just can't do it. And then, you know, a year later, he joined a different agency. Went on <laughs> over the last 20 years to become a massive touring act, theatre act, TV act. And so I'm the man who turned down Reginald D. Hunter. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I didn't have an agency and I'd never managed anybody. Of course, now I know I did, but it wasn't the era. It was an era when I was uh, still trying to prove myself as a comic and, and still trying to increase my number of clubs. And I just thought I haven't got enough hours to even think about trying to manage a comedian. It was just not in my mind. And uh, But he's such a good guy, Rach. Great guy. I won't go on. There are lots of other these stories. I won't carry on. I'd be on for too long. But... It's been it's been a lovely chat. I mean, I'm sorry that I've gone on a bit longer than. No, you haven't. It's me. I've been talking at you some of the time, and I'm, I apologise for that. Uh, it's the way I am. That's why uh, why my friends used to say, if you can get paid for talking, Jeff, that's how you'll make a living. <laughs> that's generally what one of my friends said. One of the other guys in the band, when my when the singer had said to comedy, the guy said, "Well, maybe radio." 
I said, what do you mean? He said, well, anything, you, any way, as long as you can get paid for talking, Jeff, you'll make a lot of money because you talk all the time then. So if you can get paid for it, that's how you'll make money. What did you say to him? <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. And I've been talking ever since. <laughs> and you discovered it. Is that going to be your tagline, Jeff? Oh, like, yeah, I'm no, I've no idea. I ought to talk. come up with something. They was jive talking, so I'll have to be Jeff talking. <laughs> Jive talking is a rather old reference. You have to be older to remember it, but I think That's it was BJ. Jive podcast. talking. Jeff yeah. talking. That's a podcast. Jeff talking, yeah. And then the music can be the Jive talking track with a slight amendment. Ah, yeah, that, that sounds good. <laughs> good intro music. <laughs> well, I won't start my own at the moment, Marvin. As I said, I don't like to step on uh, other people's, you know, you, you're doing a great podcast. I've done some others recently with some people, and uh, we all know there's some great podcasters out there. Yeah. And I have, I, I am doing other things I love doing, and I've even started doing a little bit of acting recently, which has been great fun. And I, I think I'll leave the podcasting to people like you. I mean, you're doing a great job. I, I, I think I should leave that alone and let other people do that. <laughs> So Lovely, what, happy to be a guest. Love being a guest. What one thing that I want to say of it: if people want to know about Murph Control, about you, how do they get in contact? Do they post a letter in your letterbox? Do yeah, they that, yeah, like the old days. So you send, send a letter to, to the send a letter to the stage. Uh, no, uh, we're we are on social media: uh, Instagram, Facebook. It's um, but we're Murph Control, uh, M I R T H, and then separate word Control, as in birth control, which I thought was hilarious. For the first five minutes I thought of it and have now been stuck with it for 24 years uh, and I'm now obviously very used to it and bored with it but it is the name I came up with at the start we've stuck with it so it's Murph Control uh, website's mirthcontrolcomedy.com and then Facebook you've just put Murph Control or Murph Control Comedy into Facebook or Instagram um, and that we're, we're, we're there and you can see the app management page and the club page and I've got my own website, but I don't use it that much, which is jeffwhiting.com. Um, but um, I've got my own Facebook as well, obviously, Jeff Whiting, um, my personal one, and I've got a public one as well. Um, and that's G-E-O-F-F-W-H-I-T-I-N-G. Just uh, don't think anybody will remember that, but that's what it is. Um, but no, it's great. And it's um, people can contact me and uh, comments are welcome. Uh, hopefully I won't hear from uh, Noel. <laughs> uh, but uh, if this has got a wide reach maybe it will but um but uh i just i just like to be honest about everything and uh, uh everybody's got their own perspective and i'm giving you mine because i'm doing a podcast with you today yeah. and uh other people have their own views and their own uh experiences in life and they share those and i'm sharing my honest open experiences and opinions about what's happened to me and what i've done and uh anybody's welcome to contradict it if they want to but i'm talking from my own you know, subjective viewpoint, and uh, that's the only way I can talk from the heart, and yeah. that's what I do. So, if anybody's offended, I'm, I apologise, but that's what I do, and that's how I do it. Uh, but as I say, I respect everybody for what they've achieved and what they've done, whether I get on with them or not. Yeah. Um, there's space for everybody, um, and there are people I don't even get on with that I still admire in terms of I know they're achieving big things, and good luck to them. But uh, they may not be friends of mine, or vice versa. But I still yeah. glad anybody that's doing something good for the comedy community and comedy businesses is, is still doing something very valuable. So that's still important. Yeah, exactly. Everyone. And thanks for having me on, big time. Well, that's it, guys. Everyone, if you want to know about Jeff and Murph Control and you need some chuckles, you know where to go. Guys, see you in the next episode.